One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello there, history friends. My name is Zach Tomley, and judging by the pelting rain in the background and, of course, the bird songs, you must be listening to When Diplomacy Fails. More specifically, the latest installment of the Versailles Anniversary Project. I hope you're all doing well and I hope you're enjoying this festive season or whatever we're meant to call it these days and I hope that you will join me as we detail a very interesting political time in Britain. Before we get into that though I would like to remind you that this podcast depends on your support. It is a listener supported podcast and it always has been. We really don't spend very much money on advertising and we rely on you guys telling your friends, telling everyone you know all about this show to get the word out there by word of mouth. Another way you can help support this show is by reviewing it on iTunes. Make a nice review and the iTunes algorithm will be like, oh, people like this podcast and they might even bump us up the rankings a little bit. I'm a bit skeptical about how the whole rankings malarkey works because we've kind of been in the same place for, well, several years now, no matter what we do. But either way, I would really appreciate any iTunes reviews you can send my way. And because I use the Podcast Addict app, I am Android, by the way, because I use that, I can see all the different reviews in every single country. I have reviews in Brazil, I have reviews in Norway, I have reviews in New Zealand, and it's really cool to see them all and to read them all. It warms the cockles of my heart. Unfortunately, sometimes there are those out there that, well, don't give me the nicest review, which is fine, but the language and tone and self-important, arrogant, condescending nature of these reviews are what really grind my gears. The best way to deal with people like these are, well, obviously, to ignore them. But because I'm far too immature to do that, I would like to ask you instead to send as many nice reviews my way as you possibly could to drown this negativity out. 
and to, well, bolster my mood a little bit at this very festive time. I would also like to thank you for sticking with me after the previous episode's introductory, well, rant, I don't know what you would call it. Maybe you don't expect to have your review read out. Maybe I should start reading out the more positive reviews as well, to show you that I really do care about what you guys are saying. There's some really nice ones out there, and some of you guys write proper paragraphs telling me how much you appreciate the show, and I love that. And trust me, I do read all of them iTunes review system is clearly not perfect because even if I could react to them in a positive way I would love to be able to do that to give you guys feedback and to thank you you can of course review the podcast on Facebook too and while I would always advocate reviewing this podcast wherever you can if you don't like technology if you don't want to bother pressing all those buttons or clicking the links below etc etc remember word of mouth is still the best way to support this podcast simply tell people that you like the show and that you want them to take part too maybe you'd like to discuss the stuff that we're talking about here maybe you'd like you and your friend to join me in the delegation game from the 18th of January maybe you'd like to see how you could do with your friends in an alternative fantasy booking interactive version of the Paris Peace Conference well you know what to do for that too patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails but again the best way to support this podcast isn't through money it isn't through writing reviews all that stuff helps of course and it gives me a great boost to my confidence but it's the stuff behind the scenes that i don't see those of you going out there mobilizing quietly and telling people whether it's your university professors your friends your dog anyone anyone at all and that's the best way to make this podcast grow I really do believe that the cream rises to the top, and it's hard sometimes to believe that, well, this podcast is growing, but from the downloads I can see that it is. You guys enjoy this kind of era, and you enjoy me talking about things in as much excruciating detail as I'm about to go into. So, if detail is your thing, if if diplomacy is your thing as well, then you've come to the absolute right place. If this is your first time listening, then we are so glad to have you. Make sure you listen to the other 15 episodes before you start. If not, if you're a glutton for punishment, you are very welcome. And if you're listening to this on the day this episode came out, good job. Happy anniversary of the coupon election. Without any further ado then, let's get into this.
You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 16. Today is the 14th of December, and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. Woodrow Wilson had good reason to be envious of British Prime Minister David Lloyd George. By the time the two men met in person, their hold on power and their mandate to act in the Paris Peace Conference had taken very different paths. On the same day that Woodrow Wilson arrived and travelled in triumph through the streets of Paris, David Lloyd George was securing his position as the only man capable of bringing Britain the peace she desired. The result would not be known until the end of December, but fortunately for Lloyd George, this result would confirm his towering coalition in its prime place atop the British political food chain. This was impressive all by itself, but it also spoke volumes about the broad appeal which Lloyd George's coalition presented. This general election, taking place across the British Isles, drew on the largest franchise ever seen in the Empire's history. All men over 21, regardless of property, and all women over 30, connected to at least £5 worth of property, were liable to vote, a fact which ensured that the electorate grew by an unprecedented two-thirds. Any revolutionary shake-ups which may have been feared never arrived, though. Significantly, the closest thing Britain now had to universal suffrage voted for the status quo. The coalition government which had led the country through the war, and which promised now to win the peace, hang the Kaiser, squeeze the Germans for all they were worth, and so much more. This coupon election was so called because all members of Lloyd George's coalition, consisting of Liberal and Conservative MPs, were presented with coupons that acclaimed their membership of this Welshman's group. Under the vast political umbrella were some of the country's heaviest hitters, but on the neighbouring island, genuine change was en route. The aftermath of the British reaction to the 1916 Rising had created a groundswell of support and identification with the Republican nationalist creed of Sinn Féin, the political organisation turned political party and erroneously associated with the Rising. This error notwithstanding, this once relatively politically neutral organisation took advantage of this opportunity and surged ahead in the polls, putting up candidates from all walks of life and even some women for the first time. This ingenuity, freshness and vibrancy which Sinn Féin represented captivated the Irish people and effectively wiped out the Irish Parliamentary Party or Home Rule Party of yore. It was a defeat for political nationalism and for home rule, and a victory for the extreme end of the nationalist ethos, even though not everyone, of course, expected the Irish War of Independence to break out within the month. Through the victory of Sinn Féin and its domination of Irish politics, these new politicians had a great chance to work for change. Instead, as we will see later, they determined to fulfil the promise of the 1916 Rising, and some of them set up their own parliament in Dublin, touching off in the process the Irish War of Independence at a profoundly awkward time for the British Prime Minister, who would have to argue selectively for self-determination abroad, while ignoring those demands of the Irish at home. Today, though, our focus is less on the Irish experience, and tilted more towards Lloyd George's decision to call for an election, the results which were anticipated, the results which actually came, and the impact that this had on Britain's experience on the Paris Peace Conference. Without any further ado, then, let's look at that. So the coupon election of December 1918, noted the historian Trevor Wilson, 
occurred at a time of considerable confusion in British politics, and the coupon itself was a product of this state of confusion. Throughout the war, Lloyd George had shot to the top by ousting Herbert Asquith, the Liberal Party leader, in late 1916. When that happened, it occasioned a split within the Liberal Party, with Asquith leading the guts of the Old Guard, and Lloyd George leading the remaining third of its members into a firmer alliance with the Conservatives and the Labour Party. Once the war ended, the Labour MPs withdrew from this political alliance, and Asquith's majority of Liberals determined to contest what little sway within the Liberal Party that Lloyd George retained. The solution, as Lloyd George accepted, was to tie his followers even closer to the Conservatives, many of whom had enjoyed leading positions in government during the war. In a sense, then, one could make a strong case for viewing the coalition, conservative, liberal government which Lloyd George led, as being dominated by conservatives, with only the force of Lloyd George's personality enabling him to retain his spot atop the greasy pole. Outside of Lloyd George's coalition, though, there loomed new political forces. The Labour Party under Ramsay MacDonald had never been stronger and captivated the imagination of Britain's working classes. The Sinn Féin Party acquired virtually all of Ireland's electorate, and the rump of the Liberal Party, which continued to follow Asquith, awaited the opportunity to avenge themselves upon the Welsh turncoat. The divisions which had emerged during the war between the different parties, and thanks to Lloyd George's unseating of Asquith, meant that this was a strange time in British and Irish politics, perhaps even stranger than the time currently going under in British politics. This was aggravated still further by the explosion of the political franchise which followed the Representation of the People Act in February 1918. What did this expansion of the electorate mean, and how could these new voters be expected to behave? For the record, it should be reiterated that the last time an election had been held was in December 1910, and by that point, barely a third of the new number had been eligible. It was immensely difficult, nigh on impossible to say, which way the country would be steered following the election. All those assumptions about how, well, less well-off people would vote, or assumptions that they would automatically vote for the most extreme, or that they couldn't be possibly equipped to vote for the right version of what Britain needed, were all doing the rounds. But this begs the question, if Lloyd George faced into so many uncertainties and so many challenges, Why did he decide that the time was now right to call for an election in the first place? Well, to explain Lloyd George's reasoning, we are drawn to Harold Nicholson's recollection of a conversation that he had with the Welshman later on in life. Nicholson, it is worth mentioning, was not a fan of the result which this general election wrought onto Britain. As he put it himself, It returned to Westminster the most unintelligent body of public schoolboys which even the Mother of Parliaments has known. He commented acidly. Yet even Nicholson was willing to admit that Lloyd George's reasoning behind this act was fair. The following extract is a bit on the long side, but it does the best job, in my opinion, at clarifying why Lloyd George believed a general election on this day 100 years ago was the right call. So let's look at what Harold Nicholson had to say. He recalled, He, Lloyd George, contends that the coalition government was menaced at that moment by conspiracies from both the left and the right. The former, headed by that egomaniac Lord Northcliffe, were all for a piece of victors. The latter, backed by a fierce tide of ignorant opinion, were clamouring for immediate demobilisation. 
Had he proceeded to Paris with both his flanks thus continually exposed, he would have been hampered and uncertain in his every decision. It was essential for him to provide himself with an unassailable mandate. Nor was this all. Mr. Lloyd George foresaw that if he were to adequately cope with the tortured nationalism of France, with the mystic and arrogant republicanism of America, and with the potential disunity of the Dominion delegations, he would need to render his own respective quality assured beyond all possible challenge. Even as it was, there were moments when his right to speak for Great Britain was slightly questioned. There were occasions when the statesmen of other countries endeavoured to mobilise against him opposition elements at home, when they flirted both with the Tories, with the left liberals, and with the Labour recalcitrant. And throughout the period of the Paris Peace Conference, Lord Northcliffe, incensed at having himself not been appointed a peace delegate, turned upon Lloyd George a constant stream of boiling water. It may be questioned whether the Prime Minister could have survived such onslaughts had he not been backed by the overwhelming mandate of the British electorate. Lloyd George called an election because the alternative would have paralysed his mandate and undermined his position just as fatally as Woodrow Wilson was later to experience. The difference, then, was that while Wilson felt the consequences of the elections to Congress only once he attempted to get the Treaty of Versailles ratified, so later in the year of 1919, Lloyd George believed that if his claim to represent the British people was undermined now, then he would never make it to Paris at all. Nicholson's repeated mention of Lord Northcliffe, the media baron and socialite, is significant because throughout the war Lloyd George had cooperated with Northcliffe to make the most of the greatest explosion in print media seen arguably since the Reformation. Lloyd George had always been fascinated by the power of the newspaper and was far more progressive in his attitude towards the medium than his predecessors, seen most plainly in his own acquisition of the Daily Chronicle newspaper five weeks before the general election was held in 1918, a profoundly significant event in its own right. Amidst these developments, we must also consider the decline of the Liberal Party, which Lloyd George's usurpation of Asquith's seat had helped to make possible, but which the Welshman did not cause all on his own. It had always been difficult to hold such a broad and vague ideological grouping together, something which not even the political titan of Gladstone could accomplish. Indeed, the Liberals had split before in the 1880s over the question of home rule for Ireland. The Liberal Unionist Party, which that division spat out, eventually merged with the Conservatives in 1912 and may have helped to mollify the straightforward Conservative doctrine of the Victorian era, making the party in turn more palatable for Lloyd George and easier to cooperate with during the war. This cooperation was ultimately born out of necessity, though, and while the emergency of the war helped to smooth over the cracks, they could not long be hidden once the armistice was signed. Even during the war, indeed, differences in opinion over the issue of conscription had exacerbated the divisions not just within the party, but over the question of what it actually meant to be a liberal. Added to this were further divisions explained by the traditional sources, occupation, upbringing, and even the location of one's home. As the historian A.J.P. Taylor commented, divisions within British liberalism were coming to the fore, and not even Lloyd George could stop them ripping his old party apart. He said, The liberal leaders associated with Asquith were men of excessive refinement, almost too fastidious for politics in peacetime, let alone at the turning point of a great war. Lloyd George's supporters were rougher in origin and in temperament, mostly radical nonconformists and self-made men in wool or engineering who were doing well out of the war. None was a banker, merchant or financial magnate, none a Londoner. 
Theirs was a long-delayed revolt of the provinces against London's political and cultural dominance, a revolt on behalf of the factories and the workshops where the war was being won. A political battle was thus expected by Lloyd George once the war ended, and he actually worried for some time that, even before the conclusion of the war, he might be usurped by vengeful liberals or outvoted by ambitious conservatives who held the bulk of cabinet posts and the majority of the coalition's power. On the other hand, Lloyd George could at least take solace from the fact that he was a popular man. He was the face of Britain's victory in the Great War, and the British people, provided he did not present too partisan a political message or too divisive a manifesto, could be expected to vote for their war hero. It certainly helped that Lloyd George made several pledges during the election with regard to the peace conference which would be expected to follow, including infamous pledges later discovered to be impossible to deliver on the nature of reparations that Britain could expect from Germany. British power would, with regards to Germany, squeeze the orange until the pips squeak, according to one advisor to Lloyd George. But the Welshman did not take long to moderate his tone once this idea was exposed as more dangerous and self-limiting than it was worth. Lloyd George's responsibilities did not extend merely to parrying his political rivals, of course. He had also to prepare himself and the British people for the conference which would follow in the new year. The optimist and realist within him suggested that the general election would confirm rather than destroy his mandate, and even though this result was not guaranteed, Lloyd George continued on in mid-November as though he fully intended to represent Britain at whatever conference followed. The task was formidable, largely because expectations were fantastically high regarding what Britain would be able to do, expectations which had certainly been fanned by Lloyd George himself. The idea that making peace would be easy, that wages would increase, that food would become more readily available, the world would simply move on. These were expectations accompanied by the idea that the prostration of Germany would help pay whatever bills did exist, including Britain's, to America. Lloyd George's strength was found not just in his personable nature and adept presentation of himself as the quintessential people's prime minister, It was also in his ability to change the debate and make unpalatable truths acceptable and understandable to a wide audience. Even when it emerged that making peace would not be easy, and that Germany's Kaiser would not be hanged, nor would her people be made to pay through the nose for peace, Lloyd George's political career did not duly suffer for these climb-downs. While he could not resist looking forward to the peace conference, Lloyd George first and foremost had an election to win, and the first step was to determine who were to be the allies of this post-war coalition, and who would be in opposition. Of course, politics influenced this process, as the Labour Party, once a partner of the coalition, was now maligned and accused of lacking the stomach to squeeze the Germans, in addition to unflattering comparisons to Bolshevism. The only way to overcome the bitter legacy between himself and Asquith was to cosy up to the Conservatives like never before. Alongside leading conservative lights like Andrew Bonner Law and Arthur Balfour, Lloyd George presented a strong front. And Lloyd George was fortunate that much of Andrew Bonner Law's conservative colleagues were both eager to partake in the coalition and boasted admirable records of wartime service which added to their popularity and expertise. Furthermore, the mechanism which granted this special election its nickname, the Coupon Letter, served as an additional exercise for emphasising this popularity. The coupon was not actually a coupon at all, but a letter, bearing the following disarmingly simple message. Dear X, 
We have much pleasure in recognising you as the coalition candidate for, insert name of constituency here, we have every hope that the electors will return you as their representative in Parliament to support the government in the great task which lies before it. Yours truly, David Lloyd George, Andrew Bonner Law. The moniker of Coupon was actually devised by Asquith himself, who used it as a means of invoking the image of those coupons which wartime rationing had made necessary. The name stuck, but Asquith's intended negative connotations did not. Instead, this letter was worn like something akin to a badge of honour by those that received it. It was a stamp of patriotism, a mark of respect for that statesman's wartime service. Consequently, those that had not received the blessing of the coupon letter were generally those that were political rivals of Lloyd George, like Asquith's Liberals or the Labour Party, or those hardline Conservatives and Sinn Féin MPs who had made it clear beforehand that they did not wish to be associated with Lloyd George's coalition project. Lloyd George's use of the coupon letter had the effect of pushing to the margins all those uncouponed candidates. It was a declaration not only of the coalition's refusal to accept those other men as partners, it was also a declaration by Lloyd George of war on those liberals who had followed Asquith and must represent, in many respects, the beginning of the end for the Liberal Party as a united force. The coupon coalition consisted, after all, of 364 Conservatives and only 159 Liberals. For the 602 constituencies in England, Scotland and Wales, 541 coupons were issued. The remaining 61 constituencies had no couponed candidates and no coupons were issued for Irish constituencies at all. More than one historian has opined that in the atmosphere of post-war Britain, these coupons served as a statement of one's patriotism, or, as one of David Lloyd George's biographers put it, In the mood of intense popular enthusiasm for Lloyd George, which prevailed at the time, the coupon was an almost certain passport to the House of Commons. To put it another way, what chance, asked one historian of the Labour Party, had Labour against the candidates who carry Lloyd George's coupon as evidence of their fidelity to the national interest? The apparently straightforward question of why this coupon was issued at all should also be investigated further, because historians are mostly in disagreement about the answer. Because the coupon had the effect of dividing and eventually destroying the Liberal Party, one could ask the more perceptive question of why David Lloyd George wanted to destroy the Liberal Party, rather than why did he want to issue the coupon. A politically savvy man to his core, the Prime Minister must have known that the use of the coupon would only divide and weaken his old party even further. Did he not care about this effect, and was he more focused simply on retaining the coalition which had served his interests in wartime? The conventional explanation that Lloyd George sent coupons only to those liberals who supported him and that he ignored those who had plotted against him is undermined by the fact that only some 100 or so liberals ever actively conspired with Asquith to work against Lloyd George in spring 1918, while more than 200 liberals were subsequently excluded from the coalition during the December 1918 general election. The general election could have been the great rapprochement between Lloyd George's Liberals and those he had left behind, yet the Prime Minister did not send out the olive branch, instead electing to burn the whole olive tree down. Another explanation, which has the Conservatives effectively pulling the wool over Lloyd George's eyes and using the coupons to destroy Lloyd George's Liberal base, also suffers under closer examination. The notion that a political expert like Lloyd George would have been ignorant of the coup which the coupon would have provided for the mostly conservative members of the coalition is frankly ridiculous. And in addition, 
Conservatives were not given many opportunities to take advantage of the coupon, since it was in fact the Liberals within the coalition that mostly decided who would receive the coupon letters. So, while we would never be completely sure what went on in Lloyd George's mind, the most straightforward explanation is normally the correct one, as the historian Trevor Wilson perceived. It was, according to Trevor Wilson, only sensible to reason that Lloyd George behaved as he did and dealt out coupons in his selective fashion during the 1918 general election because he had determined to abandon the Liberal Party for good and throw his lot in more determinately with the Conservatives. Have a listen to what Trevor Wilson said about this. He wrote, Lloyd George's decision to wage war on all Liberal candidates above this number, whether their attitude to him was friendly or hostile, constituted a clear indication that he was abandoning the Liberal Party. Initiating an election with the party in a state of disunion was one thing, denouncing its leaders and prescribing its candidates was another. By pursuing the latter course, Lloyd George showed clearly that he had decided to have done with the Liberal Party and to make his future with the Conservatives. He had become Prime Minister in the first instance on account of the support which the Conservatives were prepared to give him, and his best prospect of retaining office appeared to lie in renewing his alliance with them while his prestige was at its height. The only other course open to Lloyd George, namely reunion with the Asquithians, must have seemed unattractive to him for many reasons other than personal considerations. The view was already widely held by 1918 that the Liberal Party was a spent force and was unlikely in its own strength ever to regain office. Thus, Lloyd George's use of the coupon letter in the 1918 general election can be seen as a demonstration of his political realism, as much as it can be seen as the nail in the coffin of the Liberal Party. Unwilling to back the losing horse, the career Liberal in Lloyd George had evidently been compromised by the circumstances and the necessity of the moment. He was, like his peer and contemporary Winston Churchill, not above floating between different political creeds where the opportunity presented itself. Above all, Lloyd George wanted to win, and he wanted to win a large majority. Tied in with his impressions of the Liberals as a spent force and his distrust of Asquith's cohort of Liberals was his desire to capitalise upon his own popularity and the name value of those candidates he supported. Again, we must bear in mind that the war record of these men formed a great part of their appeal. Lloyd George even went as far as sending a coupon letter to a Liberal who had never supported him solely due to that man's stellar record of service during the war. Lloyd George, a liberal politician, was first and foremost a political pragmatist and this was the character trait that shone most clearly in the 1918 general election. All of this would have been for naught, of course, if Lloyd George's coalition members were ejected in the general election. Predictably, though, the British electorate's enthusiastic identification with shiny war records and Lloyd George's popularity as a war leader carried the day. Only 63 of the 541 recipients of the coupon were defeated. Of the 364 Conservatives who received the coupon, 333 were elected. 159 Liberals received it, of whom 136 were returned, and 18 candidates of the National Democratic Party received it, of whom half of this number were successful. In all, 541 coupons went out and 478 members came back. The award of the coupon, therefore, appears to have been decisive in the success of its recipients. It also says something about the impact which the coupon had upon the Liberal Party, 
because where the coupon made little practical difference to a Conservative Party united behind Lloyd George's leadership, the coupon served as a blessing or a kiss of death for the Liberals. This adds further fuel to the fire regarding the idea that Lloyd George knew exactly what he was doing to the Liberals, and he proceeded anyway. Lloyd George's coalition won a total of 478 seats, where 354 had been needed for a majority. This was the vote of confidence that the Prime Minister needed to journey safely to France. But two wrinkles should be considered. The first was the absence of the Labour Party from the coalition. This burgeoning new party was released from the shackles of coalition and now had the chance to serve as a true opposition party for the working class. Granted, of course, only 57 seats were won by the Labour Party, but this meant the Labour was now bigger than Asquith's Liberal Rump Group, who had only won 36 seats itself. The second wrinkle would soon explode in Lloyd George's face. The second largest party in the United Kingdom was now Sinn Féin, led by Eamon de Valera, with 73 seats. Had Sinn Féin followed the lead of their predecessors and sat in Westminster, the curious sight of so many Republicans taking their seats would have been significant in itself. However, under Eamon de Valera's leadership, Sinn Féin elected instead to ignore Westminster and to set up its own parliament, or Dáil, in Dublin. This act in January 1919 would touch off a conflict Lloyd George seems not to have expected, yet it would run in the background for the following two years and represent an open sore in British security and reputation abroad. Notwithstanding these wrinkles and the tough fight which the general election had been, Lloyd George would come out the other end stronger than ever before. His tightened political allegiance with the Conservatives ensured that the Welshman was able to harness every element of that old Tory appeal while still leaning on his Liberal supporters that remained. This combination proved politically potent and it carried Lloyd George to a great triumph just in time for the journey to France. The challenge ahead reminded the Prime Minister that all the scheming and grandstanding had simply been a means to an end. The domestic political battle might be won, but the war for peace abroad was only beginning. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.